and welcome to the Meditation Conversation, the podcast to support your spiritual revolution. I'm your host, Kara Goodwin, and today I'm joined by Tina Davidson. Tina creates music that stands out for its emotional depth and lyrical dignity. The New York Times has praised her vivid ear for harmony and colors. Her memoir, Let Your Heart Be Broken, Life and Music from a Classical Composer, traces her extraordinary life, juxtaposing memories, journal entries, notes on compositions in progress, and insights into the life of an artist and mother at work. Wait until you hear Tina's story. There's so much here in terms of secrecy, betrayal, identification, and protection. You're going to want to hear what she went through and how it affected her as a mother and the important role of forgiveness in her story. There's a lot here, so buckle in. And as we begin here, I want to point you to my amazing partners who are helping to keep things going here on the Meditation Conversation podcast. These are things I personally use in my everyday life, and I'm so happy to partner with these small businesses. I hope you'll support them and get as much out of them as I do. Check out my sponsor's link on karagoodwin.com, and there's also a link in the show notes. And if you love this episode as much as I do, please send it on to anyone in your life who would also be interested in it. Let us grow the light on this planet by sharing the high vibe content we come across. Thank you so much and enjoy this episode. So welcome, Tina. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Oh, I'm so excited to be with you. This kind of podcast is right up my alley. Oh, wonderful. Good. Yeah. So why don't you tell us, start by talking about your, a little bit about your journey. Your memoir describes your extraordinary life. So what has most informed who you are today? in your life's journey? Wow. I have to say, first of all, the, my, my memoir is called Let Your Heart Be Broken. And I have always been interested as a composer how my life informs my music. And to some degree, also how my music informs my life so that there's this sort of wonderful reciprocality uh, between the two. And I decided that I would write uh, this memoir about 10 years ago. Well, that's when I started. And I, I wrote it for a couple of years, put it away for like five years. You know how it is. And then brought it out, worked with an editor, and then finally got the publisher and worked with their editor. And I talk about my childhood journey. Actually, the book is written. So there's a chapter which is about my childhood and growing up. So every other chapter. And then... The chapter in between is journals from my 30s and 40s, which is starting to reflect back on the time that I was a child and start to understand it in a deeper way, and also my composing process. And slowly, those two things get closer and closer together until the end. So that's the general form of the book. And I talk a lot about my music, my creative process being a single mother, bringing up my daughter, being in love, being out of love, all mm. those kinds of things. But always with this idea, as the beginning of the book says, or the title says, let your heart be broken. And if I might, I'll, I'll read you just that little tiny bit. It's just the preface of the book. So I was at the Open Center 
in New York City in the 80s, really at the height of the AIDS epidemic, where, especially if you're in the arts, friends are dying. It's just horrible. And we weren't really testing. We didn't know much. And people were dying quickly and just in a gruesome fashion. So this was a conference about healing and dying and healing. And it, a lot of people were there who were caretakers for, for their loved ones who were dying of AIDS. And it was run by Stephen Levine, who is an author and a poet. And he was best known for working with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who did a lot of books and a lot of the initial work on death and dying. And person in the audience stands up and he says, what is the meaning of life? And uh, Stephen Levine uh, says, oh, I'm asked about that all the time, he replies, and I really don't know. He pauses, looking to the side and turning back, smiling. But I think the meaning of life is to let your heart be broken. And then I write, the heart, the round sphere of your being, let your heart be broken, allow, expect, look forward to the life you have so carefully protected and cared for, broken, cracked, rent into, heartbreak, heartbreakingly, your heart breaks. And in the two halves, rocking on the table is revealed rich earth, moist, dark soil, ready for a new life to begin. So I think that is you know, certainly what I've discovered about my life and what I have written music about. Mm. Yeah, I love that. The soil upon which we grow in that trauma. And so I know you've had, I guess everybody's had their own unique upbringing and experiences growing up. Yours really stands apart, knowing a little bit about your background. But can you share with us a little bit... Yes about how your trauma, because you, you talk about like your childhood trauma really being in the what you're reflecting on as you write this book. And I love that, like talking about what happened in the childhood and then, you know, marrying it or weaving it together with what's going on in your 30s and 40s as an adult and how they're informing each other. But what is it about your childhood that was informing your 30s and 40s? So the story is that I was born in Sweden, in Stockholm, and then I was placed when I was six months old in a foster care down at the tip of Sweden in Malmö with a family. And my, yeah, my Swedish mother was Solvig and my Swedish father was Torsten. I was the youngest of three boys. And the one who was the boy, who, the brother who was closest to me, was actually almost my age. So we were kind of brought up for the next three years as twins. Oh, wow. We did everything. And apparently I was the ringleader. Mm-hmm. He says, mm-hmm. oh yeah. So when I was three and a half, an American woman arrived. She got to know me over a month. And then she adopted me and took me to America. And she married. I became the oldest of five kids. And I'd always felt, I knew that I couldn't really talk about being adopted. I knew that my mother loved me. I knew that she never made any distinctions between me and the others. My stepfather was a different story, but I always felt that I was separated somehow. I was apart from life. So when they would talk about 
family histories or fun stories. Oh, your grandmother did this and your, oh, your grandfather did that. I'd always say, oh, I wish they were my grandparents. So when I was 21, during the summer vacation between my senior, junior, and no, it was my sophomore, junior year, I was in Sweden. Actually, I'd gotten a job taking care of a 13-year-old daughter of a family friend of ours. And so I was there all summer, and I thought, right at the end, I thought, oh, maybe I'll go down to the adoption agency and find out information. I'd always sort of fancied myself, you know, some Swede. So I called them up, and they said, oh, no, we would have never allowed an American to adopt a Swedish child. They never wanted their children to they always Sweden. wanted right they always wanted to protect them and keep them in Sweden they said oh we don't have any information but why don't you I'll look in the archives and why don't you call back in a week a couple of days so I called back and they said oh thank god you called back we never would have thought we had information come down right away and so I went down and she was sitting in this kind of dark office reading this letter she said, this is from your birth mother. And she said, and your birth mother is your adopted mother. Wait, what? Oh, my goodness. So your biological mother is the woman who adopted you at three and a half and raised you. Yes. How does that work? It doesn't work well. Yeah. So let me say I was born in the 50s. Having an illegitimate child in the 50s is, was a real difficulty. There's no question. She was now a professor at, at a university. She had a PhD, which was really unusual. It was a good story. It was smart. Protected mm. her. It protected me. However, and I write about this, there's a huge difference between a secret, which involves somebody else, that might be important information, and uh, privacy. She was mm. definitely entitled to privacy. I think living your life around a secret such as this, she never told her husband, my stepfather. She never told her mother. She never told anyone. She didn't tell your birth father? She, she did tell Okay, he knew that. Yeah. yeah. But nobody else knew. And so I think it, came something that she had to always navigate around. Mm. And I think when you have a secret like this, you have to be more and more secretive. It's, I don't think you get to have a secret like this and it just disappears. Yeah. And so it was very hurtful to me. It was very hurtful to my other brothers and sisters. And it took me a long time to get myself straight with it. And also... She had become even more secretive and more paranoid about it. And so she didn't want me to tell anyone. So you um, confronted her when you found out? Mm -hmm. you, you talked to her about it. Did, did she know you were looking for this information? No, I hadn't told okay. her. Yeah. Okay. So she doubled down. She didn't want me to tell anybody. She didn't feel it was her, my story. She felt it was her story. She'd been very much in love with my biological father. She had, they were going to get married and suddenly met somebody else. And so it took me many, many years. I'm sure. And, and then the other 
little piece of this, which was so interesting, which shows you how a secret like this can really start controlling everything. She had an offer that she decided I should go uh, to boarding school in Philadelphia. She said, oh, it's a great opportunity. You've got to get out of this small town. You have to go. And I'm like, going. And this was like when you're in high school? Mm -hmm. kind of? okay. Yeah. So I went off. And then in my senior year, she said, oh, there's this family who we want you to live with. And it will save a lot of money. And they're all family friends. And it will be just an amazing opportunity. So I lived in my father's house. That was your biological father. Without knowing he was my father for a year. Oh, my gosh. So Tina. It was quite a tangled story. Yes. Um, what she was thinking. Because she was an amazing woman. She was a great teacher. She was a, an amazing teacher. I took her classes. She taught many, many students who adored her. She was a very vibrant, interesting, intellectual woman. Um, she was a supporter of women's rights. You know, there, there was just so many. She was an amateur violinist. She got me to play the piano. But in this one area, it makes me understand that for myself, I really have to practice emotional honesty. That there are too many penalties for people around me to pay when I am not emotionally honest. And of course, that's not something I can say I am totally good at. Uh -huh. But I do very much try to practice it. And there are times when I'm very humble that I haven't mm -hmm. and that I need to do some thinking about how I can be better at it. But I think what I've noticed is that this kind of secret is so harmful to everyone. And it becomes, I write about it, that it becomes your own personal Frankenstein. It's behind the scenes managing things or throwing its weight around or making loud noises. And I just don't think it hasn't worked for me. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of that experience because I can imagine just how much grief there is when you start to understand everything. And it's so complicated because you talk about, you know, this was the 50s. Your mom was a progressive woman right. who was making her way against all odds just by being a woman and like flourishing in academia. And and so I can completely see from her perspective, especially in the times that they were in, like, this is the kindest thing that I can do. This is a win-win. It's a, a necessary thing. It's necessary. Yeah. Absolutely. And Nobody needs to know because this is my problem. This is my solution. This is my life. And really, I mean, I'm a mother. You know, I have two teenagers. And and it's funny, like, as they're becoming teenagers, I'm having to make that transition of letting go of some, you know, where I'm like, okay, I have, I, I've not necessarily always seen them as an extension of me, but to a certain extent, it's like I have a responsibility for them. They don't have fully developed brains and emotions and they can't make 
certain decisions with Mm -hmm. the type of perspective that you can when you have more life experience. So, but there is that evolution of like, okay, I'm handing it over now. You know, my son's learning how to drive, for example. More and more letting go of like, okay, how much can I control this? Because I have a responsibility to help him learn this. And he also needs to, you know, it's this constant weaving and like balance and you know, giving and taking and so forth. And so I can really see, you know, as if you have a baby, like that is on you. Like it, that baby is your complete responsibility. They can't make choices for themselves. And so you're trying to do the best that you can. But then there comes this time where it's like, okay, actually this is a person now with the developed emotional state, developed, you know, human adult type of thing. So when would be the right time to start like and, and without hurting them, you know, because it's it is like the longer you, you hold that, the more it's like, oh, God, I now it's been like two decades and I haven't told her. And so, God, right. I'm I'm not looking right. forward to that. Like, let's just keep going with it. You know? yeah, I totally. And I think she she really thought she probably knows she's my daughter. So oh. why should I tell her or let's just leave. You know, let's leave well enough alone. Well and- enough alone. And and she could have, as she said, she, when I was 12 or 13, she should have, could have said, hey, honey, I just wanted you to know this. I wanted you to know how much I have always loved you and wanted you. And I went back and I got you. That's something we can talk about right now with others. So we're going to have to just talk privately about it. Yeah. Um, but she got scared. And she, I think, got very tunnel vision. She could only see sort of her paranoia and her anxiety. And the other thing that I uncovered is that, so the book opens up where I'm a a new mother. I'm in my early 30s and I'm looking at my daughter and I'm feeling how amazing life is. My music is going well, but I also know things are falling apart. It kind of friendships have been really hard for me. I'm like having nightmares. I'm obsessing about stuff. And I'm looking at her and I go, oh, you have a choice. This is so you can pick door one or door two. Door one is you're going to ignore your past and you're just going to hand it to your daughter in its rawest form. Or door number two is you're going to get some therapy and you're going to work really hard. I don't think I had any idea of what really hard meant at that point. But one of the things that was uncovered that was a total surprise to me was that when I left Sweden with my mother, it was as if my family, my Swedish family, had just had a terrible fiery car accident and they had all died. The foster family or? Yes, that was my family. You know, I've been with them for th- what kind of language did I have? She didn't say, hey, you're my daughter. You know, we never talked about it. She never gave me context. And that I felt a huge amount of grief and sadness at that loss. And in fact, the book was going to be called Grief's Grace, The Grace of Grieving. And it is the second chapter in the book that 
again, the way letting your heart be broken, it's part of letting your heart be broken is that yeah. willingness to grieve. And I must have cried for two years. I, really? I was really surprised. And I never would have dreamed. I'm sure I was crying about my whole situation as well. Oh, but it was ironic that here I was in a point in my life where things were really going well. I had this beautiful daughter. I was very much in love with her dad. I was writing great music. And I was crying. Oh, wow. And were you really, because you were in therapy, you knew what it was that you were grieving or was it just this yes. response? Okay. It was, came to me, um, I was ready to stop doing therapy. And I was like, oh, maybe this will be the last session. Oh, we've got this all settled. Mm -hmm. And she said, tell me about your dreams. And I said, oh, I have had three nightmares that I have had since I was, as long as I remember. And one of them was being in an elevator. And when I got in, it was dim. The, the floor of the elevator would start to shift. And it was just a terrifying dream. And she said, how about we try this? How about you close your eyes and you tell me the dreams. I will go with you so you're not scared. You just imagine me there and tell me what happened. And so... And did you uh, have to be in hypnosis for that or you could just Well, tell this was a long time ago. I don't, later, you know, years later, she said, you know, I had no idea what we were doing. We were really? doing hypnosis, yes. Oh, okay. So I just closed my eyes. I just started talking about this dream and the doors opened of the elevator. And she said, go on, walk out. I never walked out. So I was describing the walls and the smoothness of the plaster and how gray it was and dim. And we got to an open door. And she said, why don't you look in? And I looked in and I immediately recognized myself as a little girl. Really? I, and this little girl is looking out the window and I burst into tears and she said, what's happening? She said, she's waiting. She's waiting for Solveig to come and bring her home. Oh, and that was your who foster was mother. Solveig really? is my foster mother. And that kind of broke the whole thing open. And I can't tell you if it was real or real. I just happened. Mm -hmm. I didn't know it was hypnosis. I have no idea. But whatever, it was something that brought me back to Sweden. And that sense, I think, that children do have, that parts of them are broken off and are stuck mm -hmm. waiting. Yeah. And little kids are always telling you, you know, to get lost. Just stay where you are. Don't move. Mm -hmm. We will find you. Yeah. So that was sort of the beginning of many years of really looking deeply into this and also writing music. So I have a piece that I always talk about called Dark Child Sings for cello quartet. And it was about allowing that dark child in me to have a voice through my music. Oh, Wow. Well, I wanted to ask you about how what the what role the creative process has played in, you know, the backdrop or the weaving of everything that you've had to process mm -hmm. through your through your life, through your adult life, and how does creativity play into all of it? Well, first of all, I have to say, I think writing music was always a really safe space for me. It was a place that would protect me. I could write about my life, 
you could listen to it, but you might not necessarily know what it was about because it's in music. Mm-hmm. And then I think that music has, this, as I talked about, this reciprocal effect where I always feel I pour myself into my music and I'm feeling I'm revealing myself to my music. But in a way, my music is revealing me to me. So, and many times it will teach me things that, that I need to go into different areas. I've been composing music for 45 years. The first decade, I was composing avidly, but I don't think I knew about myself. So I'm not sure that music had a lot of weight. The second decade was when I started doing therapy. And I started to recognize myself more in that music. And that was the decade that I really was exploring my past. And then when I got to my third decade, I started realizing that I was kind of addicted to depression. That I was scared to give up my depression and my, sometimes I was scared to give up my anger. Because it, you know, anger really gets you out of bed, you know, like gets you marching. And I had to ask myself, how would it you? Lo- how would it be if you gave up your anger, or if you gave up your depression, or you gave up your need to have it, or attachment to it? And that was a big turning point for me to risk giving away something that I thought might be the key to my. Uh, Creativity. Yes, exactly. And I do think as as traumatic as life can be, for me, some of the telltale signs were slightly addictive. You know, I had suffered and it was hard to give it up. And it opened up the doors to a much deeper connection to things outside of me, such as the God or whatever you want, a spiritual connection or things that I didn't understand. And I started to write a lot of music about that bigger connection. My, my titles became Delight of Angels. The piece called Barefoot is actually about the burning bush and taking off your shoes when you're in a place of the spirit, you, you need to take off. You have to be barefoot. Mm. And then that idea of how the sand feels and how maybe you can't really communicate to this bigger thing, but you can dance in front of it. So the idea of dancing barefoot. So I I have written a lot of pieces that were exploring a connection that was to something bigger that I didn't know. Wow. Well, the amount of self-awareness that is required in emotional intelligence to know when you talk about that addiction to things that we think, you know, nobody would on the surface think, oh, I really, on some level, I really want this depression or I want this anger. And so... It's very uh, brave and vulnerable and powerful to really look at that head on and be honest. And that yes. goes back to the secrecy of, you know, 
that could be something that we wouldn't want to look at or acknowledge or even entertain the idea of, but to then, you know, be that's, you know, just owning it and questioning it and being curious about it is the first step to, to overcoming it. So, but, but it, I'm really interested that you say that because I'm sure that there are a lot of people who maybe haven't thought about things like that. Like, is there something that I'm actually like, am I choosing and there's something that I like about this and what it, you know, should I like, is that for my highest good, you know? So that leads me to the role of forgiveness in your journey. So how Mm -hmm. has that played out? Oh my goodness. Again, I had a dream and I was down in the basement and this when I was pretty far along in my journey, but I was down in the basement and for some reason I am dragging something around in the basement and my basement in Philadelphia was a dirt floor. And so it's moist and a little moldy and gross. And the rope that I'm pulling, it's digging into my shoulder. So finally I look back to see what it is and it's something in a great big bag and it looks like a body. And I woke up and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm dragging my stepfather, my anger at my stepfather around. I have got to get out of the basement. So I had done a wonderful workshop called Essential Experience and They talked a lot about forgiveness and about the idea of getting clean, that it was not really about the other person, but more about you and feeling better about you. I didn't know what I thought about this too much, but I thought, well, I'll I'll make up my own practice. So I had, I was a single parent, and so I had this Staffordshire Bull Terrier, and I'd have to walk her in the morning, and she'd be tugging. She was not a well-behaved dog. She'd be tugging, and I thought, well, I will say I forgive you every morning when I walk the dog, and I don't have to mean it. I will just say the words, I forgive you. So in the morning, we started on 40th Street, and I would forgive myself. I'd forgive my daughter. I'd forgive my brothers and sisters with people I was working with. You know, the list went on. Around 49th Street, when the dog had been tugging my arm out, I would start with my mother and my stepfather, and it was not pretty. I was in a rage. I was hot. I was sweaty. And I was like just spitting nails. And I always had to think that I must have single-handedly terrorized that neighborhood. <laughs> I'm like 8.30 in the morning. Here she comes. Yeah. <laughs> and I did it for about a year, as I recall. And what I noticed were little things. I could be in the room with my stepfather and not have to leave. One Christmas, my mother and stepfather gave me a gift and I said, thank you. I, you know, honestly, I was brought to kindness. I could be kind to them. And that was so important. It didn't restore the relationship. It didn't make it all better. It still was a difficult relationship that I had to negotiate. But when my stepfather was dying and then my mother just died last November, she was 99 and nine days old and had had late onset Alzheimer. And I would go up to give my sister and my brother some respite care. And I could be with her. I could be kind. We could, you know, she always loved watching the news. 
and I could do it with her. She once was sort of stroking my arm and she said, were you, you brought up in this town? I said, well, yes, actually I was. She goes, oh, so was I. And it was just, it meant so much to me to not be just infuriated with her, just to be brought to kindness. Mm. And so that's why I would say, you know, you want to get to a place where you're free to go. You don't have to hold on to this bird and carry it anymore. And that's what forgiveness gave me. I love that. Thank you. And I love that reminder, too, of who forgiveness is for. It is wonderful to be forgiven. And we all have things in our lives that require forgiveness from others. And it feels good to be right. relieved of that. But when we're holding on to those wounds that are from somebody else, it's, I, I love the expression, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die from it. You know, it's like they may or may not have any idea that they have made. Or want to have out. any idea. Or care. Yeah. Right. But we're I, still carrying that sack, that heavy sack, you know, that is burdening us and giving us rope burn on our shoulder and all the other ways that it's affecting us. And, and stuck in that damp, dirty, dark basement right stuck yeah i think uh i yes very good to get out of there yeah yeah and it's by our own forgiveness of what has happened the trespasses that have happened against us you know it's just incredible and what a journey that you've had Thank you so much for sharing it. And because I know that there will be a lot of healing. I mean, it, it seems clear that you've had a lot of healing that you've gone through in facing, in rec facing, recognizing, looking at the shadows, the traumas, the wounds. It's very tempting to just say, nope, everything's okay. Not going to go there. Right. Dealing with something in the dream time, but I only have to deal with that when the dreams come. And, you know, it takes, a lot to recognize, like, what am I doing, not to, only to myself, but to my child? You know, does she need to be burdened by what's happened in my past because I'm not willing to look at it and heal it? So there's just so much there, but also through the creation of your work and the creation of your music, you're helping to heal other people because there are so many other people who have been through their life journey. And the more we share our stories, you know, the more we find inspiration in the the footsteps of others who've come before us. So I honor that you have done that work for not only yourself, but those who are just beginning to become introduced to your work. Yeah. So can you talk about how people can connect with you and your work, where they can find your book and all of that good stuff? Well, it's pretty easy. It's my name is Tina Davidson, so my website is tinadavidson.com. You can go on Amazon and find my book, also under Tina Davidson, but it's called It Let Your Heart Be Broken, Life and Music from a Classical Composer. And then you can listen to my music wherever you listen to it. It's on Apple Music, it's on Spotify, probably on other platforms that I don't know about. 
And of course, I am on Facebook, Tina Davidson, composer and author, on Instagram. So I'm hanging around. You can find me. Wonderful. Great. Well, Tina, many blessings to you. And thank you so much for sharing with us today. Oh, totally my pleasure. I've loved being on your show. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'd love to ask you for one quick favor, and that's to share this episode with one person who you think will benefit from it. Let them know you're thinking about them by sharing this episode with them right now. Thank you, and I look forward to the next meditation conversation.